So it's a hello from Alison and Nav and welcome to Women Build brought to you by World Architecture News. We just wanted to give a shout out today to our regular listeners. We can see coming in from Iran, Ethiopia, Belgium, the US, UK and Canada just to mention a few. If you're one of our regular listeners, you'll know already that this podcast gives women in architecture a voice. In today's episode, Women Build is going into space. We'll be joined by Christina Chardulo and Rebecca Pales Friedman, key members of Space Exploration Architectures team, or Search Plus for short, to find out about human-centered design, the advantages of 3D printing in architecture, and how building for the moon and Mars can teach us more about how we should be building for Earth. Christina is an architect with a background in astronomy and philosophy and has held positions at Columbia University's Space Architecture Lab and the Habitability Design Centre at NASA Johnson Space Centre. In terrestrial practice, she has worked for the award-winning firms of Ennead Architects and Foster and & Partners and worked on sustainable futures with the New York City Planning Department. Rebecca is founding director of the Intelligent Materials Applied Research and Innovation Lab at Pratt Institute, where she co-led a group of students working on the Exploration Habitat 2016 Academic Innovation Challenge, Human Centered, Designs for the Mars Transit Habitat, a NASA project to develop a transit habitat or module for the exploration of Mars. But before we blast off there, we want to remind you to support the other worldly women you work with. The Female Frontier, powered by WAN Awards, recognises the remarkable, talented and visionary women of all ages and at all levels across the industry here on Earth. They champion best practice, identify new and established talent and celebrate the firms that are supporting these outstanding women, whatever their role. We've been really impressed with the entry so far and have decided to extend the deadline to give more people a chance to enter. Entries now are closing on the 18th of December. So if you know of someone deserving of more recognition or you're struggling to think of a Christmas present for a colleague, make your way to wanfemalefrontierawards.com and enter. So, Rebecca, what brought you into this arena of space design? I started out wanting to be an astronaut like every second and third grader wanted to be. I was fascinated by space and I loved the idea of being in space. But for me, it was like, how was I going to feel up there? What was, how was my body going to feel? How would it work? Like, like how would, how would a spacesuit work? Like there, it really was driven by how I would feel if I were in space. And then I started studying physics in college and realized that the things that interested me most were about the mechanics of your body and how your body functioned. So I transferred and started studying design and really spent a lot of time thinking about how the things that we wear and the things that we do with our bodies in a situation affect our performance. So I am an industrial designer. I am the industrial design lead at Search. And my primary contribution is how the human functions within the machine of the building. And not just in terms of like the proportions and the shape, but how do they feel and what kind of experiences are they going to have? So it's been a, a long career, including being a professor at Pratt, where I met uh, Michael Morris. His 
first year teaching at Pratt, we we were teaching in the XHAB combined design studio, which was uh, combined between architecture and industrial design. And that's when Michael and I realized that we both were doing research work for NASA and in different but related areas. And, and I joined the Space Exploration Architecture Search Plus, and that's when I first met Christina, and we have been working together now for over five years. So it's been it's been a really interesting journey. So, Christina, what started your interest in building in space? Well, I think like many people who go into space as a kid, you feel a sense of awe and wonder about looking up at the stars. You know, I watched a lot of Star Trek. I really wanted, I really was in love with this feeling of of going out there into the universe. I actually studied astrophysics in college and realized that maybe that wasn't exactly the same as the sort of romantic idea that I had about space. And I ended up also studying philosophy as sort of like different ways of, of thinking about the world. And it sort of evolved into studying architecture at some point. And I was lucky enough to find a moment in time where there was a space studio at architecture school. And I realized, aha, this was it. This was the the culmination of that sort of romantic feeling I had as a child of wanting to go out into space. And here's an opportunity to actually do it in a different way, not have, not studying the astronomy per se, not you know building the rocket, but really to think about it as sort of that voyage out there and bringing the human being back into space it was very much a romantic fulfillment of a child childhood dream. How did you then move to work for space exploration architecture? What was the link? From that studio, it was at Columbia University. Um, My professor, Yoshiko Sato, was teaching space studio for a number of years. I happened to take it the third year that she was teaching it. And she really wanted to build that program. She got me an internship at NASA Johnson Space Center. After she passed, her husband, Michael Morris, sort of took the baton from her, and I ended up working with him as sort of TA for the class, and we gathered up a few more colleagues from from Columbia over the years. One year, NASA had a 3D printed habitat competition, and we all wanted to work on it, and we realized this was the moment to sort of formalize us as a group, you know, take our small band of academics and, and say, okay, we're actually, we have an opportunity to do something here. And yeah, 2015, we entered that NASA Centennial Challenge. It was the, the beginning of search, and then we've, we've actually managed to keep it going for <laughs> all these years. Such a niche uh, design firm, but we've, we've managed to keep it going. And this is for the Mars Ice House, the Centennial Challenge. The, yes, there were three phases of the Centennial Challenge. The first phase was a design phase that happened in 2015, and that was the Mars Ice House. The second phase was a construction demonstration phase we did not partake in. And then the third phase was in 2019, and we entered again with Mars X House versions one and two. They, they decided that they, they didn't want us to use ice anymore, and they were pretty clear about us needing to use Martian regolith. So in the third phase in 2019, Mars X house was was the regolith version of the habitat regolith being the dirt on mars the first one was using ice from what i understand it was it was mining what's expected to be in terms of building materials from the subsurface but that you said is not now the plan so it's moved to using what as the building blocks 
the very ubiquitous surface regolith, which is the the dust um, or the dirt. And regolith is the name for it without life. If I called it dirt, it would imply that there's microbes and bacteria in it. So far as we know... So this is completely oh, dead material. Yeah. So far as we know, I mean... It's very hard to know anything about a planet that we've only roved on for a few years with a few bots and done some satellite. We still don't know a lot about Mars, even though, you know, we think, you know, it's very much about it. We still guess about a lot. But anyway, yes. So originally we did an ice house, which was really a new idea. It not not been really explored before. And we did win with that idea. But after that, NASA came back and said, well, you know, that's sort of, that's a long way away. <laughs> Let's try to do it with regolith. And that's when we uh, we entered the sector. What sort of stood out from the ice house was the fact that it was above the surface, wasn't it? On Mars, for human habitation, is the radiation, or in space in general. On Earth, we have pretty good protection from solar radiation and from gamma radiation. But in space, it's quite a dangerous place. And so many habitats are depicted as being buried underground. This is very safe kind of place to be. Either pile the dirt up on top of you or, or go into a lava tube or, or go underground. And it, it would theoretically, all that dirt, all that regolith would save you, protect you from radiation. And we really believed that the point in going with people would be to be there, to see it, to explore it and see it outside your window. I mean, it's, if you had just sort of video camera of what was going on on the surface, why not just stream that back to the earth? What, what would be the point? So we wanted to build something that was above the surface that we could actually connect to the rest of the landscape. And so that's when we, so the first idea is, yes, we needed to build above ground. And then we also were considering, well, what could protect us from radiation that's not just also burying us in regolith? Why, you know, we could be above ground and cover ourselves with the with the dust, but, but that also wouldn't get us to be connected to the landscape. So we thought about water, water as an in situ material, it's there, water as a radiation shield. And water was used, water is used in shielding and sort of nuclear power plants. It's, it's very good. It's hydrogen rich, hydrogen dense. It's a really great radiation shield. And we thought, aha, maybe we could even let some light through. Maybe this is sort of the equivalent of Martian glass. So we, we decided to make the ice house 3D printed out of Martian water to really try to connect human beings above the landscape on Mars to a day and night cycle on Mars to sort of say, we're here, we're humans, we're exploring this new landscape of ours. And as this project's developed, it's now not using ice. Is the structure similar? It actually branched off. There were those at NASA who said, mm, not really interested in ice. We're also because large companies like Bechtel and Caterpillar, brick and mortar ventures, these these people wanted to work with concrete. So this was sort of trying to be an analog, like, okay, let's use regolith. So it's like concrete. So there was that group. And so for the centennial challenges itself, we branched off into a regolith habitat and we called that the X house. However, there were others at NASA who thought this was a great idea. And we worked with a group at NASA Langley Research Center to take the ICE idea in a different direction. Instead of 3D printing it, using it with an inflatable, using the water ice bladder 
basically around an inflatable habitat for Mars. There's always, NASA is not one <laughs> one group, there are multiple people. So it was kind of really, it was kind of really nice and branched off into two. So it, it continued with the Ice House with NASA Langley Research Center and became the Mars Ice Home. And that's sort of an ongoing project with even some test samples on board the ISS right now being tested in terms of the materials that we'd use to encase the ice. And so that's sort of ongoing in one way. And on the other branch, the Centennial Challenges went towards the, the concrete analog, and we designed Mars X House, which had similar principles of we wanted it to be above ground, we wanted to let in the most natural light and provide views to the landscape. And how do we do that in regolith? Basically, the, that design responded to those same kind of design drivers, but with this different material. So what's the difference between designing for space compared to Earth? And what are the challenges involved? One of the biggest differences between designing for Earth and designing for space is the conditions. I mean, there's nothing on Earth that replicates partial or almost negative gravity, the reduced pressure, or even on the moon, the almost pure vacuum of space with very little atmosphere. And then the other harsh conditions, like we could replicate extreme cold temperature on the poles of the earth, but not the temperature swings where it can go from unbelievably cold to almost unbearably hot within a short period of time like it does on the moon. One of the things that I think is really challenging, but also really interesting, is how space affects your body, the people that are living there. And I think that more than designing anything on the face of the earth, we have to really consider everything about the human and how that human interacts with the environment to be able to build in that environment and promote health and well-being for the human that's there. I totally agree with Rebecca. The, the conditions are unlike anything else. But I will say that there are certain things that might imply for the best in design for Earth. At the same time that we are expecting our human presence in space to be re expanding, we're returning to the moon, we have... In, by 250, two-thirds of humanity's population living in urban settings. And while that sounds like it shouldn't go together, in essence, in space, designing any experience in creating and demonstrating a place that operates within limited means and resources will have immense promise to return knowledge and provide feedback for Earth construction that also has to start to act like it has limited resources. In space, we have none of the supply chains and material chains that we have on Earth. We don't have the extended energy networks we have on Earth. We don't have all of these things that we sort of take for granted as being part of the infrastructure of an entire planet. In space, we have to design as if we have nothing. We have only the dirt under our feet, the air, if we have it, <laughs> around us, and the energy that we get from the sun. And we have to use and work with all our more materials locally. If we were to operate with that same mindset here on Earth, we would have far fewer of our sort of global problems of energy and resource consumption. We're also designing in space for generally small volumes, small spaces. And if we're moving towards an increasingly dense or increasingly urban population, physical space is also a resource that we have to use as if it were limited. And so in this sense, design for space has a lot to offer for design for Earth. So there's lots of things that we have on Earth that we don't have on space, which is affecting how you're able to design for it. But is there anything that you have learned from designing and building for space that can then be applied to Earth? We're in the infancy of building in space. 
and nothing yet has been realized. So to think about how we could apply what we've learned back to the earth means that we have like this fixed body of knowledge of things that we've learned from building in space. But at this point, building in space is theoretical. So in theory, some of the things that we've learned about going through the process of designing a habitat for either orbit or for the surface of Mars or for the surface of the moon is that it is a very complex and a self-contained environment that we're building and that we are by necessity going to have to build it autonomously, so robotically from a distance. I think this is one of the most exciting ways that we could affect construction on Earth. That, as Christina said, with the move to more dense populations and urban settings, there's always going to be a wealth of knowledge that's concentrated in certain aspects and areas of the Earth. And that if we could diversify that knowledge in terms of its geography by building habitats in remote or other areas remotely, I think this is a really interesting idea. I also feel like when we're building, especially 3D printed buildings, they go up so much faster than traditional building methods. The speed of how it's done, the distance at which it can be achieved, and then with the exact amount of materials that you need with very little waste are, are three huge things that could affect the way we build on Earth. Looking at the transit habitat, and we were speaking earlier about the fact that a transit habitat is kind of something that's off the highway, as you said. It's not ISS, which is the actual module that people go and do the work in. It's more of a, would you say, a rest centre en route to another space I hate to say spaceship, but a space area where work is being carried out. The premise of the transit habitat is that there's so much that's unknown about building on the surface of Mars that it was going to be too difficult to pinpoint a particular area to build a habitat on. So the idea of the transit habitat was that it was like a way station that would um, be in orbit that Uh, astronauts could travel back and forth to. And from that transit habitat, they could descend to the surface of Mars in different areas and uh, gather samples, conduct experiments, and then return to the transit habitat, which they could then depart from to head back to Earth. So whereas the ISS is, is a laboratory, this would be more like a way station from which to arrive and depart from while traveling to the surface of Mars. Okay. And what were the most important elements for that transit project? What does a human need above all things, apart from oxygen, which is obvious? (laughs) Well, they need a lot. I mean, most important, they need to be able to have regular sleep pattern. They need to exercise. Exercise is actually a huge part of any of the transit habitats, surface habitats, or or just being in space in general, because with a lack of gravity, it really affects your physical and muscular makeup of your body. And then on top of that, you really have to make sure that there's a restorative aspect to the habitat so that people can have fulfilling downtime and relaxation. Relaxation is critical to be able to make decisions quickly, 
and to be really effective in your work and the job that you have. And how would you make that comfort? Would you include colour? Is it in the design? Is it in the shape of the areas where they live in? What What's the important factors there? Well, there's tons of factors, actually, because I think one of the critical things is having green things growing around you. You know, now that we're all in, you know, inside 24 and 7 because of COVID, everybody realizes how important it is to have beautiful houseplants, right? So you feel connected to nature. This is one thing that is really critical in the design of any type of habitat, surface or transit habitat is to be able to have a connection to nature, which you do through living, growing plants. And this is a, a specialty of Christina. So maybe, Christina, you want to chime in? Sure. Yeah. Obviously, when we are leaving our planet, we don't want to sort of just simply be the human in the machine. There's so much else that we get from being on the surface of Earth than just living inside. And as Rebecca said, now we're living inside almost all the time these days. So how do we bring some piece of Earth with us? You know, in the future, it might be that we realize that we can't really survive without the rest of the planet. I mean, plants and animals and the rest of the ecosystem here on Earth are integral to our health and our well-being. And we've sort of gotten rid of them in our cities. We've, we've made ourselves into a monoculture, surrounding ourselves by architecture and machines and and we might realize that in space, we, we need the rest of our planet with us, or we need to bring a part of our planet with us. And, and bringing other life, starting with plants, is really critical to our well-being. In fact, the astronauts, it's been said that the astronauts sort of trade chores in order to sit with the zucchini plant in space. It's such an it's such a a feeling of, of warmth that they have. Um, and so, yeah, I think as we go out there, we're going to have to be more and more aware of what it means to actually really be a, a human being and a earthling. To allow people not just to survive, but to thrive in space is something that we talk about a lot at Search, is to look at it from the human perspective through like empathizing with what it must be like to have this incredible adventure at one time, you are one of the very few people in the world that are ever going to experience this. But at the same time, you are a human, a regular person. And how can you have the best possible experience to be able to share that with the world? So a lot has to do with communications and and how we can improve that connection between the experience that the astronauts are having and what we're witnessing of that here on Earth. And have you spoken to astronauts that have gone to the moon and back and and asked them what they value in their surroundings while they're away from the Earth? Yes, I have spoken to astronauts. And the thing that they all uniformly say is how much fun it is to be in zero gravity. They love the idea of flying. Now think about it. Since mankind first started like imagining what life would be, we've always wanted to float in the air. There isn't a, a kid who hasn't thought about it, jumping on a trampoline, like, you know. So that is the number one thing that they love more than anything. They invent sports for it. In their downtime, they like to just float around. That's the number one thing that I've taken away. It's just how much fun it is to be free of gravity. I've had limited experience with astronauts, but I remember very distinctly one of them, we were talking about, well, what do you, what do you think is uh, necessary for human beings? What do you think is 
important? What would be like a standard that we could take away? And I remember the answer being like, well, I can do anything. I can live with anything. It's sort of a very military attitude of like, I, you know, give me give me enough room for my body and I'm fine. <laughs> um, which is, I, I think that, you know, maybe there was not appreciative of how much design and space around you matters. Um, but yeah, I think that as we go further and go longer and stay longer, the appreciation for more than just sort of the, the bare necessities of my, you know, two square meters of space will become more and more relevant. I also think that really the astronauts that we've been exposed to are primarily from a military background, but as we go forward, it's going to be much more diverse in both background and experience that for the astronauts that we send to space in the future. Rebecca, if you had the choice, if you had the chance to get in a rocket in a week's time and go to the moon, would you go? That's a really tough question. I I don't know if I would want to go with one week's notice. I think if I had enough training, I would want to go because I feel like you really need to know and understand a lot before you can effectively go to space and be safe. So would I want to go to space? Yes. Would I want to go next week? I think I'd have to think about that. I'm like a little nervous about getting on an airplane now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's <laughs> Christina, perhaps you make it slightly easier for you. If you were to have three months training, would you get on the you know, a few years ago, I would have said, definitely, absolutely get me on there. Like, I want to go. But um, I've just had a couple of young kids, and I think – that changes my perspective quite a bit. And I'm so appreciative of the world and the planet that we have and how much beauty there is here that I just want to show it to them. As we've, we've talked about, this is all very much in the future. We don't know perhaps enough, but we, we can make some educated guesses on what's up there. Would you say that really the only way we're going to be able to build on the moon is to use 3D printing or, or are there other techniques that you think may work? No, I absolutely feel like it's got to be 3D printing of whatever, whatever the the substrate is, it definitely has to be 3D printing because there's no way that we could bring the amount of materials with us to build. So we've got to build with what is existing on the surface of whatever planet that we're at, whether it's uh, the moon or Mars or beyond, we've got to be able to use in situ materials. And at this point, it's really exciting and really doable to be able to do this with 3D printing. And one last question to both of you, really. You obviously have an immense knowledge of this area of architecture. How do you think the timeline is going to pan out? Do you think we will be on the moon in 20 years, 50 years, or, or perhaps sooner? Christina, perhaps you'd like to go first. I think it depends on the scale of activities on the moon. And Rebecca has a little bit more experience with the lunar side of things, uh, but I'm but I could tell you that it's more likely that we'll have a small outpost that we might be there part of the time that we'll be there you know a few months of the year like a timeshare for quite a long time before we might be able to build the infrastructure capable of supporting people hum a permanent human presence um, much like the iss is now the permanent human presence in space then there'll be a permanent human presence on the moon which will still be quite small until i don't know when we'll be able to have more and more people well i can tell you that the that the internal goal 
that is stated by the research group that we're currently working with wants to have the first infrastructure built on the moon by 2025, which is really aggressive, five years. The first stages in a, in a multi-phased approach to building out on the surface of the moon is going to happen pretty quickly in the future but span over a number of years. Echoing what Christina said, that the moon will be our first place that we start building with the eventuality of building on the surface of Mars. There's so many advantages of being able to use the moon as a test bed for longer duration missions to Mars and to build on the surface of Mars. So it's happening. It's happening like at this moment with hundreds and thousands of people working towards achieving that goal of building the first infrastructure on the moon by 2025. That is quite some goal. That really is. I, I shall be intrigued to see what happens. And so it is, It is. we are expanding. There's no doubt about it. We are going moonwards, I think, on, on several, several areas. So really, that just leads me to say thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This was really fun. Yes, thank you very much. It was great talking to you. And, and anytime you have space questions, reach back out to us. We, we, there isn't anything we love talking about more than talking about space. We welcome your feedback on the pod. So please aim all your comments at waneditorial at haymarket.com. These podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. So register, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are. Thank <laughs> you.